Father, so many reminders this morning of your kindness to us in Jesus. So many reminders of our former deadness in sin, and our current life in Jesus. And we, we need these reminders. And we need the text that is before us this morning to put into context the troubles of this life that we might appropriately hope in Christ and look forward to the next life. We pray, Father, that your word this morning would grant us endurance as we walk through the heights and valleys of discipleship. Please grant us endurance. Grant us endurance by looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Please grant us hope and joy this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. This morning we're considering verses 15 through the end of the chapter. So as you find your place there, let's stand and I will read this second half of the chapter. Hebrews 9 beginning in verse 15. Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established, for a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats, with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins." Thus, it was necessary for the copy of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once, once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it has been appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. You may be seated. 
A poll came out at the beginning of this month, very recently. The USA Today asked Americans from the ages of 18 to 44, youngsters, asked them, what are your expectations regarding what you're going to inherit from your relatives when they pass? The average person in that age range, 18 to 44, expects, this is an average, they expect $320,000, okay? Now, this is not a discussion, but I'm curious, later on you can tell me why you're laughing. Is that too high? Is it too low? Let me just get a a show of hands. Is that too high? Is that too low? Yeah. You see, yeah, now we've got a a good good, uh, range there, because I saw some people who are under 44 saying, yeah, that's too high, And, and definitely the older crowd saying, that's too high. So 51% of that group, this is where the average comes from, 51% of that group, they expect less than $100,000. But 6% expect a million dollars or more. Now this, this same survey asked that group, what do you plan to do with that money? And 69% said that they plan to erase their own debts. 92%, so almost all of them, 92% don't plan to give a dime to any kind of, of charitable organization. Now, financial experts have an almost universal piece of advice for, for people when it comes to this expectation of inheritance. That advice is don't count on it. Few and far between are those who inherit more than they anticipate the norm is to receive less. And there are a number of factors that contribute to inheritance disappointment. One of those factors is that end-of-life care for an aging parent is almost always more expensive than anticipated. There was another survey that came out in 2021. Okay, so this is three years ago now. 2021 found that the national average for a private room in a nursing home was upwards of $100,000 a year. Now think of what inflation has done to that number. Another factor in in, in inheritance disappointment is that the elderly now more than ever are more likely to spend their nest egg on bucket list items rather than saving it for the next generation. Another reason for inheritance disappointment, the will just often says something other than what you thought it was going to say. Mom or dad, they just changed their mind or they never planned to give you anything. More often than not, more often than not, those who expect a particular inheritance, they are disappointed. And that disappointment is compounded for those who have been counting on it to pay their debts. It's not unusual for those expecting a particular sum to incur debt in anticipation of it being relieved by the inheritance, and then the inheritance doesn't come and they are left with that debt. So the experts say, do not count on it. You encouraged? Well, the author of Hebrews wants to encourage us. He wants us to think about our inheritance. What is your inheritance? What will you inherit? And what is the likelihood that you will actually get it? Hebrews is written to people in real trouble. And many of us would feel like we fit that description this morning. In real trouble. The, the, the original the original recipients of this letter, they're being persecuted in any number of ways, including imprisonment, 
including the confiscation of their property. And all of this poor treatment is a direct result of their following Jesus. And so some of these recipients, they're desperately looking for a way to alleviate that pressure. Some of them are tempted to find hope outside of Jesus. If my association with Jesus is what's bringing this pressure, then maybe there's a way to cross to the other side without Jesus. Make the sojourn of this life a bit easier. So what does the author do? The author in the book of Hebrews essentially puts in front of the readers, it puts in front of us, our inheritance. And he makes this lengthy argument about why the readers, why we should cling to Jesus in spite of the earthly trouble that comes from doing so. And that reason is that Jesus is the security of our inheritance. This large middle section of Hebrews that extends from the end of chapter 4 to about partway through chapter 10, it makes the case that the ministry of Jesus under the new covenant, it far, per, far surpasses the, the ministry of the old covenant. And so the, the author's just going through a laundry list of ways that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than this, and He's better than that, He's better, better than that. And in chapters 8 and 9, the author has made the point that while the provisions of the old covenant tabernacle, while, the, while they left sin unaddressed and, and gave limited access to God, Christ's offering completely cleanses the sinner of guilt and gives unfettered access to God. And now in the rest of chapter 9, he teaches this. Because of the superiority and sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice to achieve forgiveness of sin, those who repent and trust in Him are guaranteed to receive the eternal inheritance. And that inheritance is fellowship with the Godhead forevermore. What's the inheritance? Something far better than our, our parents or that elusive long-lost uncle could ever leave to us. Instead, we might call it Eden 2.0. It is life eternal with God, being and doing what we were created to be and do. And how certain is that inheritance? Well, for those who follow Jesus, it is absolutely guaranteed. We're going to pick up four related ideas from the text this morning. And the first is that through Christ's mediation, the inheritance is secure. Through Christ's mediation, the inheritance is secure. Verse 15 again, Therefore He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So the author is continuing this line of thought that he has begun in in earlier passages. Because of what Jesus has done, and, and, and again what He has in mind here, is Jesus has entered the earthly tabernacle with His own blood. Because of His doing that, He is the mediator of a new covenant. He's, he's not just a continuation of, of the old, but rather this is something completely new. And the purpose of the Lord's covenantal work was to secure for us the promised eternal inheritance. God's been making promises since very, very early in human history. Very early in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 3, man rejected God and he was therefore cast out of God's presence. And even as God was pronouncing judgment upon 
the first man and the first woman, these first rebels, even as he's pronouncing judgment on them, he promises that he's going to rectify everything. And he's going to do that by bringing a seed from the woman to crush the head of the serpent. And implied in all of this is that God is going to bring man back into his pre-fall life in fellowship with God. In Genesis chapter 12, God promised that that blessing is going to come through one particular people. It's going to come through the family of Abraham. So Abraham's family will be the conduit through which the seed of the woman is going to come and, and save mankind. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes another promise. He promised that the blessing would come through the reign of one king, a son of David, and a son of God. So we fast forward all the way to the New Testament. We find that Jesus Christ is born as the fulfillment of all of these promises. But Jesus was not a king who merely defeated worldly oppressors, but rather by his righteous life, his atoning death, and his life-giving resurrection, Jesus defeated the ultimate enemies of sin, death, and the devil. He paid the penalty for our sins so that now, for those, those who repent and trust in Him, there is no longer a barrier between them and God. And the inheritance that the author speaks about here is, is that of this future kingdom that is so beautifully depicted in Revelation 21 and 22. And we won't go to Revelation 21 and 22, but let me just list for you some of the marquee attractions there. And think, as, as I'm naming these things, think about how this sounds in light of some of the things that, that you're encountering even now in your life. Some of the marquee attractions of that future kingdom. No tears. No death. No mourning. No crying. No pain. No evil. And no evildoers. No falsehood. Nothing accursed, and also no lamps or sun, because God will be in our midst, and we will see by the light of the glory of His face as He provides for us forever from the river of life and the tree of life. That, that is Eden 2.0. That's paradise. That's the inheritance that has been promised to believers in Jesus Christ and Jesus' mediation of this new covenant has made certain that those who repent and trust in Him will receive that inheritance. Now, how has Jesus done that? Well, a death has occurred. The author says a death has occurred redeeming us from transgressions. Our sins have been paid. There's nothing, therefore, standing between us and God eternally. There's, there's nothing to prevent our entering paradise. Listen to 1 Peter 1, 3-5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now again, that's Peter speaking. 
What, what, what is Peter's disposition when he thinks about this inheritance? As he ponders all of those things that, that, that we just thought about from Revelation 21 and 22, what does Peter think? Does he think, oh man, I hope I get it. I hope you get it too. I hope it's actually there. No. There's no nail-biting with Peter. But rather, Peter says, praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he knows that that inheritance is imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. And it is being kept in heaven. It is waiting. It's there. And for those who are alive in Christ, who again, who have turned from their sin and trusted in Jesus, that inheritance is money in the heavenly bank. Paradise is secured. Not many things are sure things in this world. I'll just remind you in case you've forgotten, tax season is coming. Do you know how that's going to pan out for you? We're also in a presidential election cycle. Do you know how that's going to pan out? And, and if it pans out the way you want it to or, or the way that you don't, do you know what those two contingencies are going to mean for the next four years of life, certainly the, the next decades of your life? Do you know? Can you bank on those things happening, what you foresee might happen? Can you bank on that? That's fine to care about such things. It's fine to care deeply about such things. But such things are poor places to found your hope. This inheritance, the inheritance that the author of Hebrews is, is putting in front of us, reminding us of this inheritance, the return of Christ, are being ushered into paradise. Bank on that one. Don't worry about peripheral things or even the reception of, of eternal things because Jesus has accomplished it. Now, again, he mentions that this is true because a death has occurred. And we might wonder why was a death necessary in order to secure an inheritance. And we're going to see a couple of very closely related reasons why a death was necessary. And the first of those is that by Christ's death, the covenant was ratified. By Christ's death, the covenant was ratified. A covenant is a solemn binding agreement between two parties. And here in verses 16 through 23... The author makes an analogy between a covenant and a will. And as with any analogy, we, we need to keep in mind that there's one main thing that he's trying to get across. An analogy is not an allegory. That is, everything in an analogy does not have some kind of correspondence with the thing to which it's being compared. An allegory may be that way, but with an analogy, there's generally one thing that, that, that's being shown to be similar. And, and here... It's that with the two of these things, they're only in effect, or, or that the, the inheritance only comes once a death has occurred. The author of Hebrews is saying that just as with just as with a will, that will only pays when a death has occurred. Certainly, you sign it, and, and in a sense, it's enforced in that way. But but the inheritance only comes when there's been when there's been a death. And he's saying so also with these two covenants that we are that we're looking at in Hebrews, the old covenant and the new covenant. Both of them were enacted upon death. In verses 18 through 22, you can just scan through there again, he reminds us how things worked with the Old Covenant. If you want some cross-references to the Old Covenant, maybe just one, you can write down Exodus 24, which is where we see most of these things happening. The Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, it was ratified, it was inaugurated 
It was, it, was, it was enacted by the slaughtering of animals and the sprinkling of their blood on, on the book of the covenant and the people. In fact, we find in other places in, in the Pentateuch that all the implements of worship were purified with blood. Verse 22 is worth reading again because it tells us what that blood is doing. 9.22, indeed under the law, almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So, so that blood is, is used to purify all of these implements of worship. Remember, remember that God is holy. He, he, he cannot be in the presence of anything that is unholy or unclean, impure. Nothing like that can enter His presence. And so this blood, which represents a death, it pictures justice for the sins committed by the people. Justice has been done to the animal in place of the people so that the people can be forgiven. God doesn't forgive apart from justice. We misunderstand forgiveness when we think that forgiveness denies justice. Nothing could be further from the, from, from the truth. There is always justice. Otherwise, God is not a just God. There's always justice. A substitute upon whom judgment is meted is what allows for forgiveness. And that's why he says here, there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. Just just a quick aside, we want to remember that the author has already showed us that these animal sacrifices from the Old Covenant, they were highly limited in terms of their cleansing power. They could not provide forgiveness for the things that we tend to think of as for real sins. So just go over to, to Exodus chapter 20 and look at the Ten Commandments. Break any one of those Ten Commandments. There is no forgiveness through these animal sacrifices that, that are later, later given to the people in the Pentateuch. No forgiveness for those things. These, these sacrifices, they, they merely picture a greater coming sacrifice through which there is forgiveness for all those things. So the Old Covenant is ratified by death. And the author then, then argues if it was the case that this inferior covenant had to be ratified, ratified by death, how much more should it be the case that the New Covenant is? And, and, and he, he has in mind again this idea that the Old Covenant, this is a shadow of the substance in the New Covenant. If the shadow was cleansed or, or enacted by blood, certainly the real deal must be enacted by blood. So the point of analogy is, is just that this, this, this is the, the way it is with covenants. The Old Covenant established by death or, or by blood. The New Covenant is established by death or by blood. And as we have celebrated the Lord's Supper this morning, we've been reminded of this. As Pastor Dan read to us from, from the Scriptures indicating that Jesus knew exactly what, what He was doing when He inaugurated the Lord's Supper. He said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus understood that this new covenant, this has to be inaugurated with blood. Now let's, let's pause here for a moment and think about how that idea that the new covenant has been inaugurated with blood, how does that contribute to the certainty of our inheritance? Well, in, in, antiqu- in antiquity, there were no take-backs with covenants. There, there were no escape clauses. There was no three-day right of rescission. 
If you make a covenant, you just have to keep it. And this is illustrated in multiple places. In Sunday school this morning, we, talk, we saw how this was illustrated in, in Genesis 15. But, but you, could, you could write down Joshua. In the book of Joshua, jo- chapters 9 and 10, we find that, that the people of Israel, they made a covenant with the Gibeonites. And the Gibeonites were one of those Canaanite nations about whom God said, do not enter covenants with any of those people. The Israelites did it. They did it with the Gibeonites. And we might expect God to to say about that covenant, invalid, I told you not to do that. But those of you who know that narrative, you know that's not what happened. That was a covenant. And so God moved the people to keep that thing. God then goes and fights on behalf of the Gibeonites because of that covenant that they had with His people. Again, you can read about all of that in in Joshua 9 and 10. The point being is, you don't go back on covenants. Now, how much more is that going to be the case with a covenant that is ratified with blood? The blood comes up front. Our inheritance has been secured by a covenant that is ratified not with mere animal blood, but by the most costly, the most valuable blood that has ever pumped through a human heart, and that is the blood of the eternal Son of God in human flesh, Jesus Christ. Ask yourself this question. Is God going to welch on a promise soaked in the blood of His Son? Of course He's not. Take that inheritance to the bank. Now, we see that Death was necessary. It's necessary to ratify the covenant. What exactly is that blood doing? Is another question that we could ask. And this is a second reason that the new covenant, it had to be inaugurated with blood. And it is that by Christ's blood, sin has been forgiven. By Christ's blood, sin has been forgiven. Let's look at verse 24 again. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer Himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year, not with His own blood, for then He would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Now these are, these are ideas here in these verses that have already been unpacked for us by the author of Hebrews in chapter 8 and early chapter 9. Jesus' priesthood is superior for a couple of reasons. He ministers in a tent that is not man-made, but rather it is the tabernacle in heaven. And secondly, He has made a single sacrifice of Himself, unlike the Old Testament priests who offer animal sacrifices over and over. And he has argued that unquestionably Jesus' priesthood and sacrifice is superior to those of the Old Covenant. But the big payoff comes in these verses right here. What is the result of Jesus' better sacrifice? By His superior sacrifice, He has put away sin. It's important to remind ourselves, those of us who know it, or to learn this if we don't know it, how that works, how it is that Jesus put away sin. Remember, again, God is perfectly just. There is no forgiveness of sin without justice. Every sin has to be paid for. 
Well, Jesus was substituted for us in the payment of our sin. He received justice so that we could then be forgiven. Jesus absorbed the wrath of God for the believer such that there is now no debt left to pay. And if you are one who has repented and trusted in Jesus, then your worst sin, your, your sin that's so small you're not even aware of it, and every sin in between was transferred to Christ's account before God and He died on the cross for all of that. There is no sin left on the books. Because justice was paid to Christ, forgiveness is given to you. Believer who has repented and trusted in Jesus, he has put away sin. Remember why sin is so bad. Sin sin isn't so bad just because of the trouble that it causes us in this life, and certainly it does. But the main reason that sin is so awful is that it separates us from God. It it, it removed us from Eden and it prevents us from going back. We're separated from God. But Jesus' death has achieved our forgiveness. He's achieved our cleansing. He's put away our sin. And with sin put away, sin forgiven, then the wall is gone and we can enter His presence. No sin remains by which a believer can be denied the inheritance. Now, what, what should that mean for, for, for you and I on the daily? We should, we should be people of low to non-existent anxiety because we can rest in the certainty of His provision. In, in fact, for, for those who struggle with anxiety over, over this or, or, or that, whatever it is, the truths in this passage are a helpful direction to steer your thoughts when you, when you feel yourself being overcome by worry and anxiety. This thing in your life certainly may be uncertain. That thing in your life may be uncertain. But your future inheritance is with Christ. It is absolutely certain because your sin has been put away. It's been forgiven. And yes, things may be tough now, but paradise is coming. Those are the kinds of thoughts that we need to intentionally direct our minds to in times of anxiety. Yes, I see what's going on right now, but this is temporary and it is not ultimate or eternal. What is ultimate and eternal? I know exactly what that's going to be because the Scriptures tell me and I know that it's coming because I'm clinging to Christ in faith. This brings us to an overarching theme in Hebrews. In Christ's return, the inheritance will be delivered. In Christ's return, the inheritance will be delivered. Verse 27 again. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for us. Verse 27, it's a famous one, isn't it? And some of us tend to use Hebrews 9.27 as we, as we share the gospel with people to, to establish with folks the fact that everybody dies and everybody is going to be judged. And I believe that's a fine use of, of, of this verse. 
But when we're studying this passage in its context, we need to be careful not to allow that use of this verse to dictate how we understand the whole passage. The, the main point that the author is making here is not that everyone dies and everyone will see judgment. That, that is not his, his point. Look again at verse 27. Verse 27 is a dependent clause. It's attached to another clause that comes in verse 28. The main point comes in verse 28. And, and what he's saying is, hey, hey, you guys, you know how everybody dies and, and everybody faces judgment? Jesus already did that, is, is what he's saying. Jesus did that. He died once to bear the judgment for our sins. So, when He comes again, it is not going to be to do what He already did. It's not going to be to die again. No, the itinerary will be completely different. He is coming to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Now, that last little bit in verse 28 can trip us up. He will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. We, we tend to equate those two things. We tend to equate dealing with sin with saving us or, or salvation. We, we think of those two things as, as the same thing. The New Testament authors, though, we actually saw this already in, in 1 Peter 1, 3-5. Peter did the same thing. You can look at that later and see what I'm talking about. The New Testament authors, they often use the word save not to refer to Christ redeeming us from our sins, but to refer to Christ's second coming removing us from this present evil age. Christ's second coming to make everything right. Now, Some of us just this week, we, we, have, we have felt the presence of this evil age. We've, we have felt it. It's been painfully clear. This age... This is an evil age. And, and, and remember, that's the real rub for, for the original recipients here. It's the real rub for, for us. It is hard to be associated with Jesus in this present evil age because the world doesn't like Christians. And, and, and for a certainty, the God of this world, the devil, he does not like Christians. And so there is a lot of trouble to deal with as a believer. A ton of it. And Jesus was upfront about this. He said, in this life you will have trouble. The author is saying right here, when Jesus comes again, it is not going to be to die again, but it is going to, to be to come and deal with all that trouble. He's going to bring perfect justice to His creation. In that justice, He'll destroy all evil. He'll destroy all evildoers. And He will create a new heaven, and a new earth. And then, what do we do? We party for eternity, essentially. We would just enjoy God eternally. That's the salvation that we're talking about here. The removal of all trouble unto paradise with God eternally. Now, for whom has Christ done this? That's an important question. And He, he says it here with the last little bit of verse 28. For those who are eagerly waiting for Him. I don't have time to unpack that fully, but, but the Cliff's Notes is, that's Bible speak for those who hope and trust in Jesus. Their hope and their faith are firmly placed in and on the Lord Jesus Christ and all of His work. Hang 
on, therefore, to Christ Jesus in this world. Do not let go of Him. Don't turn to something else. He alone has secured reconciliation to God and therefore secured paradise for His people. That, 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 that is the thrust of this, this whole letter. Endure the difficulty of the Christian life. Stick to the Christian life. Hold on to Jesus. It's the only road that leads to eternity with God. Run with endurance while looking to Jesus and you'll receive the inheritance. But, walk away from Him and you will have nothing but judgment on that day because eternal life only comes through Him. Patiently wait for the coming of Christ. When trouble comes, trouble today, trouble tomorrow, is, is, is your mind and heart wrestle with trouble from the past? Think to yourself, I am clinging to Jesus. I am patiently waiting for His return. Whatever the heartache, whatever the persecution, whatever the frustration, loss, or tragedy, I'm clinging to Jesus. I'm patiently waiting for His return. I am not putting my hope in the alleviation of temporary circumstances, but I'm waiting for Jesus. That has all my attention. And as I wait for Him, I'm working for Him because He alone provides forgiveness and He alone delivers the inheritance. Numerous times this morning, I've, I've mentioned two words, repentance and faith. And you may be able to tell from the context of the things what I, that I've said what those things mean. I don't have time to flesh those out fully for you this morning. But I would encourage you, if you don't know what repentance and faith is, ask one of these people sitting around you. Ask them today. Because if, if you have not repented and trusted in Jesus, then even now, this inheritance, this wonderful inheritance that we have, that we have considered, this is not yours. But it could be if you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. And know this, all, all those of you who have turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus, no matter what is going on in your mind and heart this morning, there is no doubt what your eternal future is going to look like. You will receive the inheritance because Jesus has secured it for you. You can and must bank on it. Let's pray. Father, many of us in this life, we, we, we may inherit things from our, our parents, our relatives. And in some of those cases, that inheritance will be because of things that we've done. We thank you, Father, that your inheritance has nothing to do with what we've done, but everything to do with what Christ has done. He's been a perfect son to you. And He has stood in our place, taking the wrath for our sins so that we might be forgiven and be co-heirs with Him of everything in the heavenly places. We praise You for this. And we ask, Lord, that You would grant us a vision for these things, a vision that informs and provides context to 
everything with which we struggle in this life. And let that future inheritance, Father, inform and provide context for all the things we enjoy in this life. We thank You that it's waiting for us. We pray, Lord, that You would help us by Your Spirit to eagerly wait for the return of Christ. And those among us who may be wrestling with some of these things today, with, with whether or not it is, it is worth it to continue down the road with Jesus, I pray, Father, that You would work in their hearts. You'd help them to see the truth. That there is no way outside of Jesus. Pray all these things in His name. Amen.